Chapter Seven of Our Mister Wren: The Romantic Adventures of a Gentleman by Sinclair Lewis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Mister Wren by Sinclair Lewis, Chapter Seven. He meets a temperament. Mister Wren was sulkily breakfasting at Missus Cattermole's tea house, which Missus Cattermole kept in a genteel fashion in a basement three doors from his rooming house in Tavistock Place. After his night of fear and tragic portents, he resented the general flower-paper napkin aspect of Missus Cattermole's establishment. Huh. He grunted as he jabbed at the fringed doily under the silly pink and white teacup on the green and white lacquered tray brought him by a fat waitress in a frilly apron, which must have been made for a Christmas pantomime fairy who was not fat. Harumph! He snorted at the pictures of lambs and radishes and cathedrals and little duckies on Mrs. Cattermole's pink and white wall. He wished it were possible, which of course it was not, to go back to the St. Braston Cocoa House, where he could talk to the honest, flat-footed, galumping waitress and cross his feet under his chair. For here he was daintily, yes, daintily studied by the tea-room habitués, two bouncing and talkative daughters of an American tourist, a slender, pale-haired English girl student of a seriology with large, top-barred eyeglasses over her protesting eyes, and a sprinkling of people living along Tavistock Place who looked as though they wanted to know if your opinions on the National Gallery and abstinence were sound. His disapproval of the lamminess of Mrs. Cattermole's was turned to a feeling of comradeship with the other patrons as he turned with the rest to stare hostily at a girl just entering. The talk in the room halted, startled. Mr. Wren gasped. With his head solemnly revolving, his eyes followed the young woman about his table to a table opposite. A freak! Gee, what red hair! was his private comment. A slender girl of twenty-eight or twenty-nine, clad in a one-piece gown of sage green, its lines unbroken by either belt or collar brooch, fitting her as though it had been pasted on, and showing the long, beautiful sweep of her fragile thighs and long, curving breast. Her collar of the material of the dress was so high that it touched her delicate jaw, and it was set off only by a fine silver chain, with a lavalier of silver and carved Burmese jade. Her red hair, red as a poinsettia, parted and drawn severely back, made a sweep about the fair dead-white skin of her bored, sensitive face. Bored blue-gray eyes with pathetic crescents of faintly violet-hued wrinkles beneath them, and a scarce noticeable web of tinier wrinkles at the side. Thin long cheeks, a delicate nose, and a straight strong mouth of thin but startlingly red lips. Such was the new patron of Mrs. Cattermole. She stared about the tea-room like an officer inspecting raw recruits, sniffed at the stare of the thin girl student, ordered breakfast in a low voice, then languidly considered her toast and marmalade. 
Once she glanced about the room. Her heavy brows were drawn close for a second, making a deep cleft wrinkle of ennui over her nose, and two little indentations, like the impressions of a box-corner in her forehead over her brows. Mr. Wren's gaze ran down the line of her bosom again, and he wondered at her hands, which touched the heavy bread-and-butter knife, as though it were a fine-point pen. Long hands, colored like ivory, the joint wrinkles etched into her skin, orange cigarette stains on the second finger, the nails. He stared at them. To himself he commented, "'Gee, I never did see such freak fingernails in my life.' Instead of such smoothly rounded nails as Teresa Zapp displayed, the new young lady had nails narrow and sharp-pointed, the ends like little triangles of stiff white writing-paper. As she breakfasted, she scanned Mr. Wren for a second. He was too obviously caught staring to be able to drop his eyes. She studied him all out, with almost as much interest as a policeman gives to a passing trolley-car, yawned delicately, and forgot him. Though you should penetrate Greenland, or talk anarchism to the daughter of a millionaire grocer, never shall you feel a more devouring chill than enveloped Mr. Wren as the new young lady glanced away from him, paid her check, rose slithily from her table, and departed. She rounded his table, not stalking out of its way, as Teresa would have done, but bending from the hips. Thus was it revealed to Mr. Wren that he was almost too horrified to put it into words. He had noticed that there was something kind of funny in regard to her waist. He had had an impression of remarkably smooth waist curves and an unjagged sweep of back. Now he saw that it was unheard of, not at all like Lee Teresa Zapp or ladies in the subway, for the freak girl wasn't wearing corsets. When she had passed him, he again studied her back, swiftly and covertly. No, sir, no question about it. It couldn't be denied by anyone now that the girl was a freak, for, charitable though our Mr. Wren was, he had to admit that there was no sign of the mid-back ridge and little rounded knobbinesses of corseted respectability, and he had a closer view of the texture of her sage-green crash-gown. "'Golly!' he said to himself. "'Of all the doggone cloth for a dress! Regular gunny-sacking! She's skinny, too! Bright red hair! She sure is the prize freak! Kind of good-looking, but get a brick!' He hated to rule so clever-seeming a woman quite out of court, but he remembered her scissors glance at him, and his soft little heart became very hard. How brittle are our steel resolves! When Mr. Wren walked out of Mrs. Cattermole's excellent establishment and heavily inspected the quiet Bloomsbury Street, with a cat's-meat man stolidly clopping along the pavement, as loneliness rushed on him and he wondered what in the world he could do, he mused, "'Gee, I bet that red-headed lady would be interesting to know.'" A day of furtive darts out from his room to do London, which glumly declined to be done, he went back to the zoological gardens and made friends with a tiger, which, though it presumably came from an English colony, was the friendliest thing he had seen for a week. It did yawn, but it let him talk to it for a long while. He stood before the bars, peering in, and whenever no one else was about, he murmured, "'Poor fella! They won't let you go, huh? 
You got a worse boss than Goglefogle, huh? Poor old fella. He didn't at all mind the disorder and rancid smell of the cage. He had no fear of the tiger's sleek, murderous power, but he was somewhat afraid of the sound of his own tremorous voice. He had spoken aloud so little lately. A man came, an Englishman in a high, offensively well-fitting waistcoat, and stood before the cage. Mr. Wren slunk away, robbed of his new friend, the tiger, the forlornest person in all London, kicking at pebbles in the path. As half-dusk made the quiet street even more detached, he sat on the steps of his rooming-house on Tavistock Place, keeping himself from the one definite thing he wanted to do, the thing he keenly imagined a happy Mr. Wren doing, dashing over to the Euston station to find out how soon and where he could get a train for Liverpool and a boat for America. A girl was approaching the house. He viewed her carelessly, then intently, it was the freak lady of Mrs. Cattermole's tea-house, the corsetless young woman of the tight-fitting crash gown and flame-colored hair. She was coming up the steps of his house. He made room for her with feverish courtesy. She lived in the same house. He instantly, without a bit of encouragement from the uninterested way in which she snipped the door to, made up a whole novel about her. Gee! She was a French countess who lived in a regular chateau, and she was staying in Bloomsbury incognito, seeing the sights. She was a noble. She was... Above him a window opened. He glanced up. The countess incog was leaning out, scanning the street uncaringly. Why, her windows were next to his. He was living next room to an unusual person, as unusual as Dr. Mittyford. He hurried upstairs with a fervid but vague plan to meet her. Maybe she really was a French countess or something. All evening, sitting by the window, he was comforted as he heard her move about her room. He had a friend. He had started that great work of making friends. Well, not started, but started starting. Then he got confused, but the idea was aflame to warm the fog-chilled spaces of the London street. At his catermole breakfast he waited long she did not come. Another day, but why paint another day that was but a smear of flat dull slate? Yet another breakfast, and the lady of mystery came. Before he knew he was doing it, he had bowed to her a slight uneasy bend of his neck. She peered at him unseeing, and sat down with her back to him. He got much good healthy human vindictive satisfaction in evicting her violently from the French chateau he had given her, and remembering that, of course, she was just a fool freak Englishwoman, probably a bloomin' student, he scorned and so settled her. Also he told her by telepathy that her new gown was freakier than ever, a pale green thing with large white buttons. As he was coming in that evening he passed her in the hall. She was clad in what he called a bathrobe, and what she called an Arabian burnoose, of black embroidered with dull gold crescents and stars, showing a V of exquisite flesh at her throat. A shred of tenuous lace straggled loose at the opening of the burnoose. Her radiant hair tangled over her forehead shone with a thousand various gleams from the gaslight over her head as she moved back against the wall and stood waiting for him to pass. She smiled very doubtfully, distantly, the smile he felt of a great lady from Mayfair. He bobbed his head, lowered his eyes abashedly, and noticed that along the shelf of her forearm, held against her waist, she bore many silver toilet articles, 
and such a huge heavy fringed Turkish bath-towel as he had never seen before. He lay awake to picture her brilliant throat and shining hair. He rebuked himself for the lack of dignity in thinking of that freak when she wouldn't even return a fellow's bow, but her shimmering hair was the star of his dreams. Napping in his room in the afternoon, Mr. Wren heard slight active sounds from her next room. He hurried down to the stoop. She stood behind him on the doorstep, glaring up and down the street, as bored and as ready to spring as the zoo tiger. Mr. Wren heard himself saying to the girl, "'Please, miss, do you mind telling me? I'm an American. I'm a stranger in London. I want to go to a good play or something, and what would I—what would be good?' "'I don't know, really,' she said, with much hauteur. "'Everything's rather rotten this season, I fancy.' Her voice ran fluting up and down the scale. Her A's were rather broad. "'Oh, you are English, then?' "'Yes.' "'Why, uh—' "'Yes.' "'Oh, I just had a fool idea you might be French.' "'Perhaps I am, you know. I'm not really English,' she said blandly. "'Why, uh—what made you think I was French? Tell me. I'm interested.' Oh, I guess I was just, well, it was almost make-believe how you had a castle in France, just a kind of a fool game. Oh, don't be ashamed of imagination, she demanded, stamping her foot while her voice fluttered low and beautifully controlled through half a dozen notes. Tell me the rest of your story about me. She was sitting on the rail above him now. As he spoke, she cupped her chin with the palm of her delicate hand and observed him curiously. "'Oh, nothing much more. You were a countess.' "'Please, not just were. Please, sir, mayn't I be a countess now?' "'Oh, yes, of course you are,' he cried, delight submerging timidity. "'And your father was sick with something mysterious, and all the docs shook their heads and said, "'Gee, we dunno what it is, and so you sneaked down to the treasure chamber. You see, your dad, your father, I should say, he was a cranky old Frenchman, just in the story, you know.' He didn't think you could do anything yourself about him being mysteriously sick. So one night you— Oh, was it dark, very, very dark, and silent, and my footsteps rang on the hollow flagstones, and I swiped the gold and went forth into the night? Yes, yes, that's it. But why did I swipe it? I'm just coming to that, he said sternly. Oh, please, sir, I'm awfully sorry I interrupted. It was like this. You wanted to come over here and study medicine so as you could cure your father. But please, sir, said the girl with immense gravity, mayn't I let him die and not find out what's ailing him so I can marry the Mari? Nope, firmly. You've got to. Say, gee, I didn't expect to tell you all this make-believe. I'm afraid you'll think it's awfully fresh of me. Oh, I loved it, really I did, because you liked to make it up about poor Istra. My name is Istra Nash. I'm sorry to say I'm not really. Her two reallys were quite different. A countess, you know. Tell me, you live in this same house, don't you? Please tell me that you're not an interesting person. Please. I, gee, I guess I don't quite get you. Why, stupid, an interesting person is a writer or an artist or an editor or a girl who's been in Holloway Jail or Canongate for suffraging or anyone else who depends on an accident to be tolerable. No, I'm afraid not. I'm just a kind of clerk. 
good good my dear sir whom i've never seen before have i by the way please don't think i usually pick up stray gentlemen and talk to them about my pure white soul but you you know made stories about me i was saying if you could only know how i loathe and hate and despise interesting people just now i've seen so much of them they talk and talk and talk they're just like kipling's bandar log what is it see us rise in a flung festoon halfway up to the jealous moon don't you wish you could know all about art and economics as we do that's what they say mm. then she wriggled her fingers in the air like white butterflies shrugged her shoulders elaborately rose from the rail and sat down beside him on the steps quite matter-of-factly he could feel his temple pulses beat with excitement she turned her pale sensitive vivid face slowly toward him when did you see me to make up the story breakfasts at mrs cattermole's oh yes how is it you aren't out sightseeing or is it blessedly possible that you aren't a tripper a tourist why i don't know he hunted uneasily for a right answer not exactly i tried a stunt coming over on a cattle boat that's good much better she sat silent while with enormous and self-betraying pains to avoid detection he studied her firm thin brilliantly red lips at last he tried please tell me something about london some of you english oh i dunno i can't get acquainted easily my dear child i'm not english i'm quite as american as yourself i was born in california i never saw england till two years ago on my way to paris i'm an art student that's why my accent is so perishin british i can't afford to be just ordinary british you know her laugh had an october tang of bitterness in it well i'll say what do you know about that he said weakly tell me about yourself since apparently we're now acquainted unless you want to go to that music hall oh no 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 gee i was just crazy to have somebody to talk to somebody nice i was just about nutty i was so lonely all in a burst he finished hesitatingly i guess the english are kind of hard to get acquainted with lonely eh she mused abrupt and bluffly kind as a man for all her modulating woman's voice you don't know any of the people here in the house no say i guess we got rooms next to each other how romantic she mocked wren's my name william wren i worked for i used to work for the souvenir and art novelty company in new york oh i see novelties nice little ash-trays with love from the erie station and woggly pincushions yes and fat pug-dogs with black eyes oh no please not black pale sympathetic blue eyes nice honest blue eyes nope black awful black say gee i ain't talking too nutty am i nutty you mean idiotically the slang's changed since oh yes of course you've succeeded in talking quite nice and idiotic oh say gee i didn't mean to when you've been so nice and all to me don't apologize istra nash demanded savagely haven't they taught you that yes'm he mumbled apologetically she sat silent again apparently not at all satisfied with the architecture of the opposite side of tavistock place diffidently he edged into speech honest i did think you was english you came from california oh say i wonder if you've ever heard of dr mittyford he's some kind of school-teacher 
I think he teaches in Leyland Stamford College. Leyland Stamford? You know him? She dropped into interested familiarity. I met him at Oxford. Really? My brother was at Stanford. I think I've heard him speak of— Oh, yes, he said that Mittyford was a cultural climber, if you know what I mean. Rather, oh, how shall I express it? Oh, shall we put it finicky about things people have just told him to be finicky about? Yes, glowed Mr. Wren. To the luxury of feeling that he knew the unusual Miss Istra Nash, he sacrificed Dr. Mittyford, scholarship and eyeglasses and Shelley and all, without mercy. Yes, he was awfully funny. Gee, I didn't care much for him. Of course, you know he's a great man, however. Istra was as bland as though she had meant that all along, which left Mr. Wren nowhere at all when it came to deciding what she meant. Without warning, she rose from the steps, flung at him, Good night, and was off down the street. Sitting alone, all excited happiness, Mr. Wren muttered, Ain't she a wonder? Gee, she's striking-looking. Gee, Whittakers. Some hours later, he said aloud, tossing about in bed, I wonder if I was too fresh. I hope I wasn't. I ought to be careful. He was so worried about it that he got up and smoked a cigarette, remembered that he was breaking still another rule by smoking too much, then got angry and snapped defiantly at his suitcase. Well, what do I care if I am smoking too much? And I'll be as fresh as I want to. He threw a newspaper at the censorious suitcase, and, much relieved, went to bed to dream that he was a rabbit making enormously amusing jests, at which he laughed rollickingly in half-dream till he realized that he was being awakened by the sound of long sobs from the room of Istra Nash. Afternoon. Mr. Wren in his room. Miss Nash was back from tea, but there was not a sound to be heard from her room, though he listened with mouth open, bent forward in his chair, his hands clutching the wooden seat, his fingertips rubbing nervously back and forth over the rough under-surface of the wood. He wanted to help her, the wonderful lady who had been sobbing in the night. He had a plan in which he really believed, to say to her, "'Please let me help you, princess, just like I was a knight.' At last he heard her moving about. He rushed downstairs and waited on the stoop. When she came out, she glanced down and smiled contentedly. He was flutteringly sure that she expected to see him there. But all his plan of proffering assistance vanished as he saw her impatient eyes and her splendors of dress, another tight-fitting gown of smoky gray with faint silvery lights gliding along the fabric. She sat on the rail above him immediately, unhesitatingly, and answered his evening cheerfully. He wanted so much to sit beside her to be friends with her, but he felt it took courage to sit beside her. She was likely to stare haughtily at him. However, he did go up to the rail and sit, shyly kicking his feet beside her, and she did not stare haughtily. Instead, she moved over an inch or two, glanced at him almost as though they were sharing a secret, and said quietly, "'I thought quite a bit about you last evening. I believe you really have an imagination, even though you are a salesman.' I mean, so many don't. You know how it is. Oh, yes. You see, Mr. Wren didn't know he was commonplace. After I left here last night, I went over to Olympia John's, and she dragged me off to a play. I thought of you at it because there was an imaginative butler in it. You don't mind my comparing you to a butler, do you? He was really quite the nicest person in the play, you know. Most of it was gorgeously rotten. It used to be a French farce, but they sent it to Sunday school and gave it a nice fresh frock. It seemed that a gentleman tabby had been trying to make a match between his nephew and his ward. 
the ward arted personally i think it was by tonsorial art but anyway the uncle knew that nothing brings people together so well as hating the same person you know like hating the cousin when you're a kitty hating the cousin that always keeps her nails clean yes that's so so he turned nasty and of course the nephew and ward clinched till death did them part which i'm very sorry to have to tell you death wasn't decent enough to do on the stage if the play could only have ended with everybody's funeral i should have called it a real happy ending mr wren laughed gratefully though uncertainly he knew that she had made jokes for him but he didn't exactly know what they were the imaginative butler he was rather good but the rest ugh that must have been a funny play he said politely she looked at him sidewise and confided will you do me a favor oh yes i ever been married he was frightfully started his no sounded as though he couldn't quite remember she seemed much amused you wouldn't have believed that this superior quizzical woman who tapped her fingers carelessly on her slim exquisite knee had ever sobbed in the night oh that wasn't a personal question she said i just wanted to know what you're like don't you ever collect people i do chloroform em quite cruelly and pin the poor little corpses out on nice clean corks you live alone in new york do you yes who do you play with no not not much of anybody except maybe charlie carpenter he's assistant bookkeeper for the souvenir company he had wanted to and immediately decided not to invent grand mondes whereof he was an intimate what do oh you know people in new york who don't go to parties or read much what do they do for amusement i'm so interested in types well said he that was all he could say till he had digested a pair of thoughts just what did she mean by types had it something to do with printing stories and what could he say about the people anyway he observed oh i don't know just talk about old cards and jobs and folks and things and oh you know go to moving pictures and vaudeville and go to coney island and oh sleep but you well i read a good deal quite a little shakespeare and geography and a lot of stuff i like reading and how do you place nietzsche she gravely desired to know question mark nietzsche you know the german humorist oh yes uh let me see now he's uh why you remember don't you haeckel and he wrote the great musical comedy of the century and matisse did the music matisse and rodin i haven't been to it he said vaguely and i don't know much german course i know a few words like sprechen sie dutch and biddy sir and that rabbin at the souvenir company he's a german jew i guess learnt me but say isn't kipling great gee when i read kim i can imagine i'm hiking along one of those roads in india just like i was there you know all those magicians and so on readin's wonderful ain't it um yes i bet you read an awful lot very little oh denunzio and some turgenev and a little torgenive that last was a joke you know oh yes disconcertedly what sorts of plays do you go to mr wren moving pictures mostly he said easily then bitterly wished he hadn't confessed to so low life a habit well tell me my dear oh i didn't mean that artists use it a good deal it just means old chap you don't mind my asking such beastly personal questions do you 
I'm interested in people, and now I must go up and write a letter. I was going over to Olympia's. She's one of the interesting people I spoke of. But you see, you have been much more amusing. Good night. You're lonely in London, aren't you? We'll have to go sightseeing some day. Yes, I am lonely, he exploded, then meekly. Oh, thank you. I should be awful pleased to— Have you seen the tower, Miss Nash? No, never. Have you? No. You see, I thought it'd be kind of a gloomy thing to see all alone. Is that why you haven't never been there, too? My dear man, I see I shall have to educate you. Shall I? I've been taken in hand by so many people it would be a pleasure to pass on the implied slur. Shall I? Please do. One simply doesn't go and see the tower, because that's what trippers do. Don't you understand, my dear? Pardon the my dear again. The tower is the sort of thing school superintendents see and then go back and lecture on in school assembly room and the G.A.R. hall. I'll take you to the Tate Gallery. Then, very abruptly, Good night, and she was gone. He stared after her smooth back, thinking, Gee, I wonder if she got sore at something I said. I don't think I was fresh this time, but she beat it so quick. Them lips of hers. I never knew there was such red lips. And an artist. Paints pictures. Read a lot. Nietzsche. German. Musical comedy. Wonder if that's that merry widow thing. That gray dress of hers makes me think of fog. Curious. In her room, Istra Nash inspected her nose in a mirror, powdered, and sat down to write on thick, creamy paper. Skilly, dear, I'm in a fierce Bloomsbury boarding-house. Bores, except for a phenomenon, little man of thirty-five or forty with embryonic imagination and a virgin soul. I'll try to keep from planting radical thoughts in the virgin soul, but I'm tempted. Oh, Skilly, dear, I'm lonely as the devil. Would it be too bromid to say I wish you were here? I put out my hand in the darkness, and yours wasn't there. My dear, my dear, how desolate! Oh, you understand it only too well with your supercilious grin and your superior eyeglasses and your beatific Oxonian ignorance of poor, eager America. I suppose I am just a barbarous Californian kitty. It's just as Peridurian said at the atelier, You have understanding of the ire immorality, but I hope you can cook paint you cannot he wins i can't sell a single thing to the art editors here or get one single order one horrid eye-glassed earnest youth who sees people at a magazine he vouchsafed that they didn't use any outsiders outsiders and his hair was nearly as red as my wretched mop so i came home and howled and burned milan tapers before your picture i did though you don't deserve it Oh, damn it, am I getting sentimental? You'll read this at Petit Monsard over your drip and grin at your poor, un-Nietzschean barbarian. I. N. End of chapter 7 Read by Don W. Jenkins Rancho San Diego, California Shaggybark.blogspot.com